Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event. I'm Catherine Haddon, a senior fellow here at the Institute for Government. And today we're going to be asking a question that has many answers. Uh, what do we want from our MPs? It's a question with many answers because many people want many different things from their elected representatives. The job is to represent his or her constituents in Parliament, to get through piles of casework, it's to scrutinise legislation and appear on the media, it's to hold the government to account or perhaps to serve in government, and it's to travel from constituencies that might be hundreds of miles from Westminster. There's no guidebook or instruction manual. The only person who really decides what an MP does and how to divide their time is an MP. And because what people want and expect has evolved over time, the days of uh, infrequent of the days of frequent late sittings and infrequent visits to constituencies might be long over. Perhaps even the days of second jobs might be over as well. And that whole row sparked by the controversy over Owen Paterson has also reminded us that MPs um, that the job of an MP is quite complicated and perhaps it's time to make that job spec a little clearer. So joining me to discuss all of this and who knows, maybe make that specification a little bit simpler is a great panel of people who work both in and outside of Parliament. Uh, we've got Ben Lake, who's Plaid Cymru MP for Ceredigion, first elected in 2017 and is a member of the Welsh Affairs Select Committee, as well as Plaid Cymru spokesperson for a huge range of domestic policy. Too long for me to list, I'm afraid. Uh, we've got Sir Peter Bottomley, who's Conservative MP for Worthing West, but first elected to the House in 1975 and the current father of the House. Also pleased to be joined by Marie Leconte, who's a freelance journalist and author of two books on the world of Westminster and the role of MPs, both excellent Christmas presents if you're looking. Uh, and finally, Tim Bale, who's Professor of Politics at Queen Mary in London, and most recently one of the co-authors on the, on the book on the 2019 election as part of the general election series, also now available through certain online retailers if you are looking for an impressive stocking filler. Um, Ben, I want to turn to you first. You've, you've written, written about, about the impact of COVID on the work of the constituency MP and you've been doing the job since 2017. What for you are the most important parts of the job? Uh, what do you prioritise? Well, thank you for that question. I think it's um, a bit of a split personality and a split job role, um, as many would perhaps suspect. Um, parliamentary duties whether they include raising questions in the House or indeed serving on select committees or bill committees or what have you there. I consider that to be a very important part of the job of, of the MP as legislator. Um, and, I'm, and I'm quite specific with that word legislator. Um, of holding the government to account, yes, but scrutinising legislation. I think it's uh, something that is often overlooked in, in the public discourse and discussion of, of the jobs of MPs because the other uh, part of my role um, and one that I believe probably uh, demands the most uh, on my time in a typical week is that of a representative, very, very broadly defined, but more, most often are not uh, encapsulated by casework. Um, I think that uh, I've been I've struck been struck since 2017. You know, I don't have the, quite the same level of experience as uh, Sir Peter to be able to draw historical comparisons, but I have noticed that since just 2017. The expectations on an MP's office when it comes to casework, the the breadth of the topics and issues that are brought to attention um, is quite incredible. And, and I would suggest that uh, in the future we will have to need well, we will need to have a frank and adult conversation as a society. Perhaps it begins this evening um, as to whether or not we want uh, our MPs to be more and more like caseworkers, social workers, agony aunts or whether we want them to, to perhaps balance or rebalance their attentions more towards matters of state, legislating, scrutinising the government, because there is a bit of a tension and I think it is increasingly difficult to do justice to both. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Peter, can I come to you then? Um, do you recognise that? Has the job changed significantly in the time that you've been serving in Parliament? It's always changing, Ben, ben is right, uh, but it also changes whether you're on a, the government side or not in government, uh, whether you're actually a member of government or not, and all those things people will take for granted and they'll understand that anyway. 
there are times when being the representative is being a blue light service. You sit in your garage or ambulance station or postcard shed until something really goes wrong and then people pile in and, and something happens often to make things less worse than they would otherwise be. So, for example, if you take the uh, debate over Owen Paterson, uh, a number of us came out and said what the government was trying to do was wrong. Government still won, but without the confidence and they came back the next day and changed in the same way without making quite so grand in 1940. In the Norway debate, Chamberlain won the vote, but lost the argument and went. So that, that's that's the blue light type thing. The, the questions of uh, representative of individuals interests or areas interest. And it's curious that for a long time people would represent areas which were running down without doing much about it. In contrast to what happened before the 1939 war, when a number of younger conservatives, young radicals, fought for the depressed areas and started putting pressure on government to make life better in those areas. Uh, Ronnie Carpenter being one of them, Harold McMillan being another. Uh, they organised actually to, to change government policy on, on major type of things. Uh, you can argue that casework matters or doesn't matter. The view I took when I was first elected with the Labour Council, who I thought were running things badly, it was wrong that a uh, someone in social housing should come to me to get their local council to give them a, a proper examination of their needs. The council will do it first time and do it right. So I spend my time helping the constituent, but also helping the council to shape up their policies to take that kind of area of work away. And the same thing ought to apply in dealing with the Home Office on Immigration and the like. So in a way, trying to get problems to evaporate. And, and the last thing I'd say is this, Part of the job which an MP can do, which judges in theory can't, is to bring justice and law closer together. And to do that, I think you ought to have in Parliament, at national level at any rate, a fair number of people who might qualify as medium ranking judges. And medium ranking judges, of whom there are 1,800, presently are paid between 130 and £150,000 a year. We know that the poor person can be an MP, the well off can be an MP, but what about those in the middle who have normal sort of MP? and achievement, how much of a cut should they take to move from being head of a large comprehensive school or deputy head of a local authority to serve in the same kind of role in Parliament? Yeah, I want to probe a bit more about pay in a bit. Um, Marie, I want to come to you now. Um, Ben's also already talked about the impact of the pandemic. Um, I want to speak a little bit about that. It's something you and I have discussed before, but also the impact of social media on MPs. Has that changed the way in which they're perceived, the way in which they're doing the job? Um, oh yes, no, absolutely. And I think it's a bit of, there's sort of two things at the same time here. So the first one obviously being the pandemic. And I think you see that, especially with 2019 intake MPs. And as you mentioned earlier as well, there's not one way to be an MP and no one kind of you know takes you by the hand when you get elected to explain what the job is. Usually what happens is that you come in and you get basically all the hands to you know show you how to set up an office, how to do your job, etc. That didn't effectively happen because they came into parliament and then the pandemic happened nearly immediately afterwards. So they basically had to sort of like create the job for themselves and quite often that's meant a job that's been very very rooted in the constituency also held by the fact that a lot of them you know are in marginal seats anyway so probably would be more constituency focused as it is so yeah but very focused on that and what I found quite interesting is perhaps more on the Tory side and the Labour side there's a it feels quite transactional from some of them, nearly sort of US-like kind of, you know, well, you know, you, you elected me and you will get that bridge or, you know, I, I said I would build that underpass and that's getting built, uh, which I think we didn't used to see as much uh, in politics before. But then, yeah, the, the broader thing as well, I think the context is also that social media, I think, had been individualising MPs quite a lot over the past of like five to an extent, 10 years in that, you know, for a very long time, if you were a backbench MP, no, to be blunt, no one massively cared, you know, about kind of what you were doing. You were elected because of the party you represented and then you sort of did your thing. And, you know, the local paper may care a bit, but that was sort of that. I think Facebook to an extent, but especially Twitter has changed that. So that means that you can now have any opinions on any topic. You can mark yourself as saying, actually, you know, I'm a campaigner on like X or Y issue or I'm a X wing of the party, have, you know, that ideology, etc. So you can very much create I think a profile for yourself and see yourself arguably I think as more an individual uh, individual sorry and I think you sort of see that in even political coverage and we saw a lot of that during the Brexit years as well of every time there was a vote you know you'd have the mirror the Guardian all the papers saying actually you know 
click on that tool and we'll show you exactly how you MP voted on this and this and that. So, so yes, I, I, I would say that the rule is changing in the sense that MPs, no matter, you know, whether they are secretaries of state or lowly backbenchers are kind of more their own person. And I think you see that quite a lot as well with uh, the 2019 intake MPs, both Labour and Tory, already breaking the whip quite often, which feels quite unusual for, you know, uh, yeah, for an intake that's still very fresh. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tim, um, coming to you, um, public perceptions then, is, is, is that true? Are we seeing that, that the view of an MP has changed quite a lot and quite recently? It's difficult because actually there, there's less uh, data than you would imagine uh, to allow us to form a picture of uh, what's happened over time. We have, however, got some quite interesting data from a survey that was taken both of MPs and of voters about five years ago as to the role of an MP. Uh, and what you see there is some broad agreement and then some very, very big disagreements between MPs and voters. So actually, when it comes to the, the sort of top ranked role, as far as both voters and MPs are concerned, it's actually taking up and responding to uh, issues and problems raised by your constituents. So there's, there's fairly broad based agreement on that. Over half of uh, voters think that that's the, the most important role. And actually even more MPs think that that is uh, the most important role. So that really, I think, comes back to what um, Sir Peter was saying a little bit earlier. There's a quite a big difference, however, between um, how much they value um, the role in legislation. So uh, I think it's about 16% of MPs um, put that as the, the, the top thing that they should be doing, but only around uh, seven percent of voters think that that's uh, the the most important thing for an MP uh, to be doing. So there's a big difference there. Um, there's also a big difference when it comes to being active in the constituency. Now it's around eight percent of MPs think that that's important. So I I, I guess that's um, showing yourself uh, <laughs> opening schools, fates, that's that kind of thing. Whereas for voters, that's much more important. It's nearly 30% of voters put that as the number one thing that MPs um, should be doing. Interestingly, and this comes back to something that Marie was saying, uh, and I wonder if uh, there might be a, a little bit of um, uh, economy with the actualité when it comes to this, as far as MPs are concerned. Um, there was a question in there uh, about maintaining a national media presence. Uh, and apparently uh, only, uh, let me just check the figure so I get this right, apparently only 0.6% of MPs thought that was the most important thing for them. Uh, and 0. Uh, let's see, 0.7% of voters thought that was the most important thing. But I suspect with some MPs, uh, that's actually rather more of a role they take seriously than perhaps they're admitting. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Actually, I can see um, Ben and, and Peter are both um, looking askance at that. Um, Peter, do you recognise those, those sorts of descriptions? Does that tie with your experience? And when you talk, do you talk to new intake of MPs when they join about what it's like, what you think the role is? If anyone makes the mistake of asking me a question like that, I'll ask them if they want a drink and, and get them talking because the last thing anyone seriously wants to hear is what an MP has to say until they're dead and buried. Eh? To those who are thinking of politics, I, I recommend Julian Critchley's book called The Bag of Boiled Sweets, which is what he suggests is the only thing you're allowed to um, accept now as a Member of Parliament in terms of hospitality. Uh, and, and I think, if I just go back to the first question, what I would have intended to have said is, who is your circle in, in Parliament or National Assembly or whatever? There are people like me who, who tend to work across party bounds on all sorts of issues that matter. So whether it's leasehold reform or it's, uh, it was trying to get in front seatbelt wearing back in 1982, or whether it's trying and uh, trying to get possibility of abortions legally for people in Northern Ireland. Those things only work if you go across party boundaries and you actually accept that from the ex extreme left of the Labour Party to the centre right, uh, that their party extends to the centre right and to Tories it goes from extreme right to centre left and within that area in between is normally where the rudder and the mast are so you can throw a government out and you can keep many of the MPs anyway and go on working for things which basically need long-term attention. It's also worth remembering that in terms of legislation nearly everything that's passed in Parliament now was fought about five years ago on the previous bill on the subject so even though an amendment might have been lost five years ago, it may come back now, and we're seeing that over some of my residential leasehold type things. 
Um, if an MP says, because they've got 30 or 40 or 20 years experience, they can tell you what it's been like. They're wrong. First of all, if they're that old, their memory's gone. And secondly, the issues change or the personalities change. And if you're in an area where you have a minority government, as we did from roughly 77 to 79 with the Lib Lab Pact, or you had uh, the instability of uh, Theresa May's period, or um, you had from 2010 to 2015, where David Cameron creatively got the Lib Lab Pact coalition going properly, much of a surprise. That's very different from when you have a majority of 80 or 120 or whatever. You're, you also need to be able to play a waiting game, unless you're a whip, in which case your, your job is just week to week. You aren't in long-term policy. And I think that to have this kind of discussion without bringing the whips in and their influence and who those sorts of people are, um, you, you'll give people an idea that MPs can decide what they're going to do. Those who have seven jobs as ministers don't have to decide which way to vote. They're told, and they will, and the PPSs will as well, unless they resign. It's only for the people in the middle who have degree of discretion that we can decide for ourselves, I will vote with the government, tell them they're wrong, or vote with the government because I think they're right, or abstain or vote against, and whether I do that noisily or quietly. And those are, the, again, the kinds of things which most outside observers don't really understand. Tim. Uh, interesting, there is research on um, what voters uh, think of MPs who do um, uh, refuse to toe the party line, who do dissent. Uh, and interestingly, it shows that voters like that. Uh, they regard it not only as a, a way of sort of boosting the MPs profile, so it, it, it gets more name recognition among voters, but they also like it because it signals, as far as they're concerned, trust and in, integrity. Uh, so uh, voting against, while, as Sir Peter says, is impossible, basically, if you're on the payroll, um, if you are a backbencher, uh, then it, it may be something that actually does you some good uh, electorally, uh, or at least in terms of, of the way that your voters um, think of you, whether they, they repay that uh, when it comes to polling mm. day is another matter, of course. Yeah, Marie, did you want to come in on this? Um, yes, I did. No, I. So I was wondering, although there's not an adjacent issue here on basically saying what, what do we want from our MP staffers as well? So it kind yeah. of strikes me that a lot of what we're talking about of saying, you know, basically yeah, that the whips are just telling the MPs what to do and what to vote on. And there's not quite enough time to do everything in the constituency and everything in Parliament, etc. As Ben was saying, isn't that like, aren't a lot of the solutions here basically saying actually we should probably give MPs a lot like considerably more budget basically for their staff. So be that, you know, if they need people to properly, you know, policy experts who can kind of chew on that stuff and help the MP make the best decisions or enough caseworkers. Because I know if you um if you talk to kind of MPs and especially inner city constituencies, they say basically all of the money on my staff goes to uh, caseworkers in the constituency. I have no one in Westminster, like one part time pe person. So I feel I'm not scrutinising the government or doing the lawmaking bit of the job as well as I know I could. So, so yes, I yeah, just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Um, the yeah. staffers, more money. Um, Peter, I see you wanted to come back in. And um, Ben, I am going to come back to you on that question as well. Um, I, th I think we should pay enormous tribute to caseworkers, especially over times like Afghanistan, when they were run all 24 hours a day by people hiding behind a rock in desperate, desperate need. And there are times even for people in this country whose circumstances become indescribably unbearable. And it's our staffers often together with the MP who, who, who pick them up and prop them up and take the emotional burden of that as well. On researchers, I would bluntly ban researchers full stop. An MP should not speak on something they don't know anything about. And if they want to learn about it, read the mainstream media. Don't send somebody off to go and do a part-time MA in the library and come forward with 14 pages of which they're able to use five paragraphs if they get two and a half minutes to speak later on in the debate. Ben, is that reason? I mean, you're a spokesperson for a huge range of domestic policy. You're quite a small party. How much, how important are your researchers and do you need more, not, not less? <sighs> Well, I, I think that most MPs officers would uh, welcome an extra pair of hands, um, especially on the point that Peter made on, on caseworkers, because the uh, the past two years in particular have taken a quite an emotional toll, I would suggest. Um, and in the early weeks of the pandemic, um, I remember that the phone was went off the hook. Um, the inboxes at one point you know, it, it was uh, refusing to load properly because such were the 
with the volume of, of uh, emails coming in and and we are dealing with people who are in desperate desperate uh, situations and and uh, understandably quite anxious and and emotional and uh, there is a, a relationship that develops um, over time um you you know we i'm sure that sapita would also have a certain number of, of constituents who have fallen on some bad luck and you get to know them quite well and, and the case workers also um become effectively a, a friend on the other side of the phone when oftentimes there is nobody else to call um and so i do think that there is a very good case for looking at the staffing budget when it comes to um constituency offices and and uh, case workers when it comes to the you know the researchers i i have quite a a degree of sympathy, actually, is Peter's position on this. Um, I do think that if we are to have MPs um, deliberating, debating, um, tabling amendments potentially and scrutinising government decisions, then having them engaged and informed on the matters of the day, whatever that may be, is incredibly important because it is one thing for an MP to stand on their feet and read a pre-prepared speech on a subject that they have no idea about. Um, it's another for them to actually debate and engage in the debate um, from an informed position. Now, perhaps um, I might not go quite as far as a complete ban, but if we were to um, discuss changes to the budget and increases to the staffing budget for MPs, I do think that it is something for us to pursue that there is hypothecated perhaps more towards caseworkers and, and um, there is a particular job structure and uh, job description that could so that MPs would be able to, to make greater use of, of uh, parliamentary resources, or sorry, finances to employ more caseworkers, which should then uh, free up a lot of their time to do the reading and to do the uh, the other aspect of the role of, of engaging in, in uh, important matters of the day. Mm. Um, I'm just going to bring in a question that we've got, which you can all ponder, because I know Tim wants to come in again. Um, you can ponder this question and, and see if anyone wants to take it on. Um, somebody's asked, how has the changing role of local government affected the amount of casework that MPs receive? Uh, has the devolution of some services to the local level changed what MPs have to do? I suppose, you know, the other aspect is uh, sort of problems with social care and, and where services are actually falling over. Have, has that increased the amount of, of, of casework? Um, ponder that. And if anyone wants to sort of come back on that, that'd be great. Um, Tim, in the meanwhile, you wanted to come back on, on one of the yeah, points. I just wanted to talk a little bit about research. It's worth saying that, of course, the, the two main parties especially do have a kind of centralised research service um, that does supply their MPs. Um, with briefings if they want them. And of course, there is the Parliamentary Library, which does an incredible job uh, as well. So uh, it, it isn't necessarily the case that MPs need individual researchers. They could they could give those up uh, in favour of employing more people in, in uh, casework, as uh, both our MPs have suggested. Um, in, in terms of the, you know, the changes to local government and, you know, whether they've eased the burden or not, I suspect that's not true. Uh, I suspect actually because of the way that the state has to some extent for good or ill retreated uh, since the 1980s, um, there is simply more um, you know, hardship, to be honest, uh, more people falling through more cracks. And that means more people will contact their MPs. And, and unfortunately, in some ways, the, the more successful MPs are in actually solving people's problems, then the more work they are bound to generate because word of mouth gets around that uh, the, the MP can help people out. And, and understandably, they will then go to their MP, particularly if they find that they're frustrated by the bureaucracy of, of local government and uh, other organisations. Peter. Well, my, my wife was a member of Parliament for 21 years. In fact, when she said she's going to stop, she thought that was long enough. I said, don't say that in my constituency because I've been there rather longer. Uh, her post bag was about three times greater than mine. And it wasn't because of the characteristics, characteristics of her constituency. It's because, first of all, she's very efficient at responding. And secondly, people tend, on, in general, to look to women as being more interested and more responsive than men. And I think that it'd be interesting to a study whether that's just my hypothesis or whether there's something to back it up. I think often women do finds so being asked to do more things, doing more things and getting a greater degree of correspondence to which they give more attention than many men do. I think that uh, the question about local government, I don't think that would in a study show a demonstrable difference. And even if Tim were right, which he may be about state withdrawing from things, I'm not sure as much evidence they have on imbalance, on balance, 
uh, I don't think that's what generates MPs post bags or, or emails or people coming to you. I think that often it's publicly run services where things either slip through the cracks or they uh, seem unfair or unresponsive that matters. And here, incidentally, uh, just in, in praise of people doing housing in different ways, in my present constituency, two thirds of it's in Worthing, which has pushed its social housing to Worthing Homes, an arm's length charity. The Aaron Park have still had directly run social housing and each work equally well and far finer than the London Borough of Greenwich did when I was the MP there for, for 22 years. So I think that different systems can, can work equally well or possibly badly and that the quality of people leading services and giving effective devolved power to their own staff make it possible for them to bring the human touch in, which otherwise will come to the MP or the MP's caseworker to say, please reread this. And by the way, did you see what they said in the second paragraph? That seems to be the determining fact. No, give them what they need. Mm. Ben, I think you wanted to come, you in. Wanted to come in. Yes, just very briefly to, to add, of course, that in um, in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, um, you also have the devolved legislatures as well. And, and that has um, perhaps on initial uh, reflection, you'd think that it would help uh, the post bag of, of the MP in those areas because uh, members of the Welsh Parliament, Scottish Parliament, or Irish Assembly, what have you, uh, to undertake inquiries on a whole range of policy areas. However, in practice, I think that um, we find that the public's understanding um, of the constitutional situation um, isn't always uh, that good. And um, I think given that you know, the member of parliament as a as an office, as, a, as an individual, um, has quite a long pedigree. And often, if there is a concern or a, a problem, it is to the member of parliament that people go to, even if that particular problem relates to a devolved area of policy. Um, health is, is a, you know, a big one. And then the individual MP has that uh, quandary of, well, do you take the approach of, well, I should be advising and informing individual that actually they shouldn't come to the member of parliament they should rather write to their uh, members of the welsh parliament or to their county councillor if, if, if it may be the case um more often than not i'm perfectly happy to admit um you tend to think well they are in in a bit of distress um i shall help them um but that perhaps doesn't do any good in the long run for, for people um and the mp's post bank uh, Maria, I want to just explore a bit, again a bit more about um, social media because we've got a few questions coming in about that. And we've also got the Commons Committee on Standards who've now produced their recommendations for reform, which has obviously been a big focus for the last few weeks. One of the things that they've talked about is uh, an additional principle of respect being added to the existing seven Nolan principles um, and also recommended that MPs should be banned from making an unreasonable or excessive personal attack in any medium. Do you think this change is necessary? Is there something about MPs social media presence that, you know, has changed the sort of the, the political discourse? Oh, yes and no. I, th I think the main problem is basically that all of this is so new that we kind of, there are no rules at the moment. We have no idea basically what's right and what's wrong. So I remember a few weeks ago, actually, there was a debate on Twitter over, so I think the idea was, should an MP be allowed to block someone else on Twitter, especially if they're a constituent? And that was genuine. I mean, and I know it sounds like a very small thing, but it was really interesting because actually, everyone came up with a slightly different reasoning for saying, you know, yes, it's fine, no, it's not fine, no, it's fine only if X, etc. Um, and, and I think that's kind of symptomatic of a wider problem, which is that we have no idea how members of parliament are kind of expected to act on Twitter. And obviously, I think more recently, we had Nadine Dorries uh, talking quite a lot about trolling, and then some people obviously pulled up predictably some tweets where she'd been less than kind to, I think, journalists she disliked, etc. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say I think it's it's arguably a good thing to have a conversation on this and perhaps even have some rules of saying, actually, you know, we're deciding now Twitter has been around for about a decade. We've now decided that we should actually say, well, you know, you can do X, you can't do Y. Um, but but I'm not entirely sure who really gets to decide that and how that's actually going to play out. Um, uh, yeah, Marie, we, we had a question. Sorry, I'll, I'll ask Marie what her Twitter handle is. Oh, yes, uh, it's at Young Bulgarian. Bulgarian, but the Bulgarian is supposed to be someone who doesn't know that they're vulgar, so you can't do that. So you've turned, turned yourself into a French philosophical knot. <laughs> I have. <laughs> uh, 
I, I think just coming back, I, I once was told I'd got some uh, technology award for being an MP who had a Twitter account, but I got the award for never using it, which I think is a, a bit backhanded. I think the idea of respect being something others can judge uh, is not right. My father told me when he was a minister's assistant private secretary in 1948, he was authorised to reply, dear Snooks, your unexpected letter to the minister has been read and to inform you has not been selective for substantive response. If someone then complains that that's a lack of respect, I hope any judge would say it's a perfectly reasonable response. There's no duty to respond to people. If someone sends me their 17th letter in a fortnight, having done the same thing in other fortnights before, I ought to be able to say to them, you can go on writing, but don't expect a reply. Or if someone won't politely end a telephone conversation, I can say to them, uh, you can go on speaking. I won't say another word. I then put the phone in the wastepaper basket and go off to another room and do some more work and leave them to it. Now, that might be judged by some as lack of respect. I regard it as appropriate. Agree. Um, so I don't disagree, but then I think you, you could make the opposing argument of saying, especially in the case of social media, so Facebook and Twitter, quite often MPs will be using that for constituency matters and, you know, constituency breaking news or saying, you know, if a road is flooded or whatever else, you know, that they will first and foremost put that information out on Facebook and Twitter. So again, I think there's there's a bit of a pickle here, which is quite interesting of saying, does that mean that, you know, if a person is abusive, you can cut them off from the channel in which that person would usually find out about what happens in their village or their town, etc. So, and I, I'm saying that, you know, I don't actually have an answer to this, but that, that's the question, I think. Ben. Thank you. And a thought that just occurred to me in recent weeks, um, uh, I've received quite a, a few pieces of correspondence, whether through social media or indeed uh, via email uh, and actually the post, um, in which people have, take great offence um, at the fact that I perhaps don't agree with their point of view. And that seems to have, um, I haven't really quite reflected on it until very recently, because it's quite bizarre really that somebody would expect an MP to always agree with them. Um, likewise, it is unreasonable for an MP to, to assume and to expect their constituents to agree on what they're doing. You know, that is part of the debate. It's, it's an important part of democracy, I would argue, that that exchange of opinions can be had in a, in a polite and civil manner. But it is quite striking that, especially on social media, um, mm -hmm. if you are to disagree with somebody's view, point of view, then you are then chastised and indeed sometimes demonised. Um, and it's start, that has been there since 2017, certainly my experience. Um, you are the big bogeyman if you don't agree with every single thing that somebody puts to you in a tweet. What is now quite interesting is that has percolated through to the more typical traditional pieces of, of media of correspondence, you know, the post and, and email. Um, but it is quite funny, um, some of the responses you can elicit if you just politely disagree. I'm just going to bring in two of the, the questions that we've had. Uh, George asked earlier, social media is being toxified and weaponised by some in politics. Shouldn't we have a basic social media charter for MPs? I'm leaving that there as more of a comment because we, we've sort of we've discussed that uh, a little bit. But also just going to what you were saying um, there, Ben, uh, we had, if I can find it again, um, somebody asking is there more that yeah do do we think that mps do a good enough job of explaining to the public what their job is and why it matters um tim i know you wanted to come back but if anyone wants to come back on that point and then at some point we're going to have to turn to pay i think yeah i mean it is a tricky one because there is no as people often say job description uh, for mps there have been a few attempts to um, nail one down but it is quite difficult but it, it is such a varied role um, one thing I did want to say, uh, and it comes off the back actually of what Ben was saying, is that I think one of the great things about our MPs, and, and you know, there's enough bad said about them, um, so let's say something good, is that as you know, as far as I know, and as far as anyone has ever done research on this, they really do not discriminate when it comes to helping people. Um, on the basis of whether those people have voted for them, you know, whether they disagree with them on particular issues. And I think that is an, an incredible, uh, incredibly valuable part of our system and, and something that we shouldn't forget, actually, that um, despite the toxification, despite the polarisation, it remains true that if people write to their MPs, whatever their views, uh, and they need help in terms of casework, then MPs and their staff will give them that help. Yeah, um, Marie, you want to come back in again? I've just got a comment um, 
I'm going to read out also anonymous. Uh, given the constituency case workload and need for more office staff, should impartial public servants be employed to ensure a minimum standard of service to constituents, which I guess is a follow up to this debate about whether or not the amount of time that MPs are devoting to constituency, maybe quality rather than quantity is important in terms of constituency, but I'm not sure how you would do that. Um, but ponder that one, come to it if you want to. If not, we've got loads more to talk about. Marie, you wanted to come back. Oh yes, just on the point of saying actually should MPs do a better job of explaining what they do for a living. Um, I, I I think that's actually something that's been under discussed a bit and the example I would use is they work for you. Um, but the, the idea being that, you know, thanks to social media, especially I think in the internet in general, I think there are a lot more people who are sort of paying attention more to what happens in Parliament because, you know, stuff goes viral all the time and, you know, some votes which actually were not that important will be made to look on Facebook, like, you know, basically the Conservative government have banned puppies forever, etc. Um, but, but, but there's kind of like, you know, a, a big problem there, which is that actually Parliament is very opaque and the way it works can be very confusing. And as you see a site like They Work For You, which I'm sure Ben and Peter will be very well acquainted with, which says, you know, your MP voted for X, you know, strongly in favour of X, strongly against Y. Um, but, but which has been criticised kind of time and time again for saying actually, you know, it, it can be quite misleading and it will count, you know, things like, for example, every single line of what, what is in the budget um, as separate votes or, you know, will not count when there's uh, something goes without a vote in the chamber, etc, etc. And then obviously, so I've actually interviewed the founder of They Work For You before and his argument was actually saying, we're just trying our best here and, you know, we're not Parliament, we're just volunteers effectively trying to make the public understand what happens in Parliament because no one else is doing it. So I, I do think there's kind of an issue there of, um, around, I think, the broader expectations of MPs is also as a first step, making sure like you know, someone somewhere should be making sure that actually the public, if it wants to, should have a better sense of actually what does happen in Parliament and how laws are made. Um, Peter, I think you wanted to come in. Yeah, I, I think the job of those who do they work for you is incredibly difficult and they don't do it very well. I just looked myself up and apparently what I, my views were on bovine tuberculosis uh, in cattle is one of the important things. And I could tell them five or six other things which are running issues that affect large numbers of people that are reasonably current. But I think they've got a difficult job. I think that uh, describing what an MP does is a bit like describing what a parent does. And I think what you ought to do is to aim to have be a good enough parent or a good enough MP. And for a parent, I could run through five things which don't make you a perfect parent, but you know, get your child to school on time each day, having the right clothes, having had breakfast, uh, have another meal with another household at least once a fortnight, have one after school activity, be on the best possible term for the child's other parent. If in doubt, the children's interest comes first. I can do the same thing for MPs and say, if in doubt, the national interest or the constituency interest comes first, but don't make it only the constituency interest, in which case our defence policy would be determined by whether the, um, the Marines music school should be in deal or not. I think there are more important things than that. So I, I think that you also need to realise that MPs vary from being a 25 year old new person who may be very important, like William Pitt, who became prime minister, or a, a 70 something year old who becomes prime minister like Winston Churchill, having been through four or five different parties. You know, if, if the idea of respect your own party mattered, that wouldn't have been allowed. We wouldn't have had him in 1940. So I, try not to push MPs into something which provides the same kind of shape decoration on every cake. Allow for space. But if your MP isn't good enough, change the MP. Don't change the terms or what you think about them because your MP may have slipped up or maybe a bad hat. OK, oh, I want to ask about pay. You mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, a big impact. It depends where you've come to. And, and just to say, we've got quite a few questions coming in on this. Uh, one says, uh, do you think that constituents want MPs that complain about the salary when they receive it's more than three times the UK medium? Um, and uh, there were some others below. I'll, I'll sort of come to those. I mean, Peter, do you do you think that there needs to be some kind of variation? Is that what you're saying in terms of the level of pay? Does that mean that, right, so you wouldn't think that, say, you having such a long experience of being in the job, you would get paid much more than, say, Ben coming in, having no, only I, done I, I, four I, years. I, it's not I, like I another pay, system. I, no, I, I should pay less because I don't have a big mortgage. I don't have expensive dependent children. I've got a working wife. There's every reason why I should do the thing for free, and I probably would. That, that's not the point. And what people also don't realise is that, first of all, I've been making the same speech on this since 
the 26th of July, 1977, when it was put to Enoch Powell, who pointed out there were more candidates than places and didn't suggest the terms were at least adequate. The point was put back to him by Mike Thomas, a good Labour MP. Were you to lower the terms so you had exactly the right number of MPs, would the right honourable gentleman then be satisfied with the calibre of his colleagues? He remained in his place, muttering into his waistcoat something about the impertinence of those who have not been here for very long. I also think the MPs' pay shouldn't change between general elections. You should stand for election on a, on a rate of pay, and that shouldn't change for inflation or anything else until there's another election. The, the, the issue, just to repeat for those who were sort of thinking about something else when I first said it, is not whether the well-off person can be an MP, a successful no, no, uh, novelist or someone who owns a business, or the poor person who's been used to being a Methodist minister, or they've been out of work, or they've been someone at home with caring responsibilities. It's the people in the middle. And why do we pay uh, general secretaries of my trade union at 50% more than members of parliament? Why do we pay uh, the deputy chief executive of my local authority 50% more than the member of parliament? Are we saying that these people, if they've decided to be an MP for five or 10 years, should stop? And the comparison which people insult me about is that if my GP, my family doctor became an MP, I think they ought to be able to be a general practitioner in politics at the same rate of pay as a general practitioner in medicine and go back to being a general practitioner in medicine, which would require them to be able to keep their license up. So the idea you can ban second jobs, even for those who weren't ministers, strikes me again as hardly opening your mind before you start talking. So I think that essentially make being a member of parliament something which a normally successful professional person can do, recognising that it is two to three to four times higher in pay than the median earnings. If you look to when MPs were first paid money, and of course all, of our, all the others were, if you pay money, they'll do it for the money. Not true, wasn't true, just excluded people. That they were then paid, I think, six times the median earnings. I'm not saying that I would give up at lower rates of pay. I wouldn't, I'd do it for free. I don't ask for it for myself. I don't have needs. But I do want to have a system where those middle successful people can come in without a significant change to their standard of living. Ben, I mean, this has obviously been a very live debate um, in the country at large, uh, second jobs and also to some extent, M you know, MPs pay. What's it been like in, you know, in the House in the last few weeks? What's the mood like and has have views been changing or, you know, is Peter making some sort of strong points there? Well, the the mood has been um, um, I, I suppose I'd say quite fluctuous um, past fortnight and uh, quite tense. Um, the, you know, the fundamental question is is, uh, is quite an important one for us to deliberate on and I think that it's good that we are having the debate as to uh, perhaps broadly speaking what should the MP be doing and then more specifically whether or not they are able to undertake um, other forms of employment at the same time. Um, from my point of view I think the the time commitment perhaps is is the big um, factor. The and this again we come back to the, the quandary we identified at the beginning as to it, uh, the the role of an MP can vary quite significantly. The expectations on an MP um, perhaps in in a rural setting, very well hundreds of miles away from London, you at the at the stroke of a hat you need to factor in either at least eight to ten hours travel time every week. Um, yes, you can do emails on trains, you can take a few phone calls if the signal is, is adequate, but by and large it ties you to a very limited uh, range of functions as an MP. Um, compare that to a member of parliament who perhaps lives nearer to parliament um, in, London, in one of the London boroughs, then of course that sort of time constraint isn't uh, the same on them. But if I was to say that uh, perhaps I'm being um, I'm missing something here, but I, I find it very difficult uh, for the last two years to even entertain uh, pursuing um, another form of, of employment at the same time as, as being a member of parliament, just because the time pressures and, and uh, uh, responsibilities upon me as a member of parliament were so great. Now, I do have sympathy, however, to the point of view that has been, has been made that we do not want to throw the baby out of the bathwater and we want to make sure that those who stand for election and those who serve as members of parliament um, have a, a wide range of experiences and in you know in that endeavor of trying to uh, assemble a parliament that is as reflective of, of society as possible right 
And in that, to that regard, I think we, we've already heard um, arguments being made that those in certain professions that will require them to maintain their professional qualifications, whether they are barristers, whether they are doctors. Um, you know, it seems to me that people are quite happy for that exemption to be made. And I think what probably we will land in, in the end, if we manage to reach any consensus, will be that there is a, a principle that being a member of parliament will take up the vast majority of your time. However, there will be a certain uh, list of, of uh, professions or vocations that society as well as parliament would benefit from uh, being included in a, a list of exemptions. I've named a few, but I'm sure there are others. That's probably where I think we should be um, pursuing as a, as, a, as a country. Um, that's where I think we'll probably end up. We then, however, get into the trickly uh, question of money. Um, and whether or not, uh, how much, sorry, should uh, members of parliament, if they are to be allowed to continue in, in second professions, um, how much of that, how much remuneration uh, can they receive? But that's what I'm, I'm afraid to say, I haven't quite worked it out myself yet. Sure. Um, Tim and Maria, I know you both want to come in. Um, just to say, because you mentioned diversity, we've got a couple of comments on or questions on that, but if, if anyone wants to come, this one's directed to you, Ben and, and Sir Peter. Um, could you comment on the first past the post electoral system and whether it enables the most representative candidates to be elected to the Westminster Parliament? Uh, and there was another question, if I can just find it. Uh, Martin George says, leaving aside pay, how do we ensure that across elected MPs, we have a representative balance of expertise and interest that reflects the interests of the country as a whole? Is this desirable? And if not, why not? Um, Tim, I think you had your hand waving yeah. at me first and then Marie, I'll come to you. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when we talk about uh, MPs with experience, uh, we're often talking about you know professional experience or business experience. But actually, if you look at uh, the question of representation in the House of Commons, um, the the biggest lack in some senses is people in ordinary working class occupations. And that has got worse over the years as Labour has become less reliant on trade unions, uh, for example. So really, if we if we want people to <laughs> undertake economic activity or to have undertaken economic activity in order to make the House of Commons rather more representative, then we really ought to be talking about people who drive bin lorries rather than necessarily people who um, earn you know, rather large amounts of money uh, as uh, part-time directors or uh, as, as consultants. Interestingly, there has been some um, research on this by, by Phil Cowley and, and Rosie Campbell, who did some um, survey experiments on this to find out what the public thought uh, about this. Uh, there wasn't really much evidence that the public bought the idea that uh, MPs carrying on second jobs um, helped them uh, you know, understand society uh, better. Um, but there were some differences that the, the public you know, were much more sensitive when those jobs were very, very high paying uh, than they were uh, when those jobs you know, uh, only earned a, a, a small amount of money. Uh, and they are also very unsympathetic to things like part time directorships, um, unless um, they were of a company which that MP had started. They were actually quite keen on entrepreneurs being allowed still to run their own businesses and run their own companies. In fact, they were even keener on that than they were on people um, carrying on doing their profession like law or, or medicine. So the public have got actually quite um, nuanced attitudes on this. It's not it's not all bad. And I, I don't think we necessarily need to go so far as, as both uh, our MPs are saying. Uh, as, as to ban all second jobs, because I think the public do recognise that there are some benefits. They're not completely convinced that they're huge. Um, and it, as I say, it does depend on, on quite how much those benefits mean in terms of finance uh, to the MPs concerned. Yeah, Marie, it does seem to be coming down to, doesn't it, a debate between whether it's about experience and skills that you bring to the role of MP versus a way to make money. Um, yes, well, I think so. The point I was going to make, um, it's sort of adjacent to that. And I think um, apologies for like getting a bit philosophical, but I do wonder if the tension at the centre of this is not actually 
the difference between what do we want from our MPs and what do we want from our House of Commons um, in that, you know, I think you could quite easily argue that the best possible House of Commons we could have would be a mix of actually, you know, people who do have part time jobs, be that very highly paid or what they used to do beforehand and stuff, or people who are sort of, you know, born and bred in SW1 and just work in politics seven days out of seven. Uh, but a mix also, you know, obviously like ideologues and people who are just very focused on local, you know, bread and butter issues, etc, etc. So you kind of need a really rich mix, basically, of members of parliament in order to make a House of Commons that is as, as good as it can possibly be. But at the same time, every time we do end up debating things like this, it, it, it kind of ends up being like, actually, what do we want from each single individual MP with the idea that they should all sort of be the same in every set of rules we develop. So be that on second jobs or pay or etc, you know, everything else. Um, and, and would end up basically not working because it kind of assumes that every MP should sort of be the same type of MP. So again, I think the problem I think here is micro and macro of um, what we want from individual MPs is not quite the same as what we want from the House of Commons as a whole. But yeah, again, again apologies if this is getting a bit esoteric. Um, yeah, <laughs> we like a bit of esoteric. It is, um, you know, 10 to 5, so it's worth it. Peter, did you want to come in? Yeah. No, 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 no. One comparison I always go back to a journalist, even if you take a subset of journalists, those who do the sketches, the politics sketches, they're very different. You know, you had Patrick Kidd, who's brilliant at the long view on sport. Quentin Davis is quite good at reviewing plays. You've got John Crace, who's in an area of his own. You can't draw up a specification saying, good, we want to do our diaries. And Marie and, and her uh, accurate descriptions of what goes on in Parliament uh, would, would stand um, you know, as, as the inclusiveness of both not being English to start with and having the ability to make jokes in French and in English contemporaneously, which I think is quite smart. I, I once tried that. Um, I, I think the, first of all, a very serious point. Some people only vote for Conservatives, only vote for Clyde, only vote for Lib Dems. Others will say, I'm willing to, to float or use my judgment. If those people predominantly chose the better candidate from those in front of them, or their first two choices, you'll find parties saying, which is the better candidate? Who will get those votes from thinking people? Not just the, 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 the loyalists, who I don't regard as unthinking, because they're very important to have them, but if, if on balance, each MP came from a party locally who selected and nationally who put them on the list, if that's the way it works, who said, this is the better kind of person, you end up with better MPs, full stop, across the board. Let's try to remember that. Secondly, just to take something out of Tim's mouth, we tend in our country to assemble our coalitions within parties before an election rather than afterwards. Most countries, especially with national PR systems, going for government forming, coalition forming afterwards, where normally instead of first past the post, it's last past the post. The biggest minority party buys the smallest minority party because they're normally the cheapest, and you end up with sometimes chaos and sometimes other things. Last thing, just to keep in people's minds, try to remember the benefits of the stability of lasting parties. If you look at the demagoguery, or if, if Nigel Farage doesn't mind me giving him that compliment, of getting people into the European Parliament for, for UKIP, they were uh, obviously a lot of people who had to apologise saying I said I couldn't get elected, but I was wrong, they did get elected, but they were a complete shambles in general, or at least a number of individuals. Try to go for some degree of stability with parties who do have a lasting interest in what's going on, rather than the flashes in the pan, because one thing you can say about our politics is we tend not to have extremists in our parliament for long and in large number and avoiding the extremists avoids a lot of other problems which will keep the institute of government going for much longer than it might otherwise do. Thank you. Um, ben, I just wanted to turn to you. Um, there's a, a question from uh, George saying parties choose people. There are thousands of people who would make excellent MPs, but the UK doesn't do indie MPs, independent MPs. Why is this? I mean, more a question for you of like, you know, what the motivation for becoming an MP, the journey to becoming an MP, you know, does it feel very much about you as the individual versus you as part of the, the party? party? How does it, how does it has the balance has work? I think that um, there is a temptation, I'm sure, in, on, on occasion for a, an MP to think that it's something that they have done uh, when it comes to elections and that they have uh, managed to, to win a seat um, because of their own inherent strength and, and, uh, and what have you. However, um, I think that on balance, the it is very difficult for um, for us to, to elect independent MPs 
not perhaps because the the electorate are um, inherently opposed to having MPs who are not affiliated to a party, but more because it is very difficult during an election period, even if it is a, a scheduled election and, and a candidate is able uh, to muster a campaign over two years or what have you, it is very difficult for them without a party and without all the resources, both financial and also in terms of people, to get their name, their message, their values out there. And so perhaps if you were to, I remember my grandparents saying that um, certainly in rural parts of Wales, the, the, the big event was the hustings and every village would have the hustings where all the candidates would attend sometimes for 10 minutes just so that they give their pitch and then they go to the next village. And they were able, I suppose, to take a, a temperature um, and the measure of the candidate for themselves. These days, those sort of events don't happen as much. You do have a few hustings. So you are then dependent on the leaflets, the door knocking, the campaigning and the canvassing. You are only really able to do that with the help and support of the party behind you. So I think that probably explains why we have so few examples of, of independent MPs. And then the, the few examples that we do have in recent history, I think have tended to, to have won as an independent following a career in Parliament or indeed some sort of celebrity. Um, I think that probably then is the exception that proves the rule. And then finally, and I guess there's a question for all of you, I'll come to each of you in turn and we've got, only got a few minutes left. Um, ben, starting with you, I mean, you say it's been a very difficult few weeks, um, you know, in inside Parliament. We now have the Standards Committee report on suggested reforms. We have a, a route forward. Do you think that this has been a healthy debate to have had and do you feel optimistic about the future or do you just think this is a sign of how difficult things are now and the, the level of scrutiny that are on MPs? Well, I don't think that um, enhanced scrutiny of MPs is a bad thing. I think actually it's, it's a good thing. Um, it keeps us on our toes and makes sure that it focuses our minds. And ultimately, I'd like to think that it helps improve governance in general. Um, however, if to, to address your question directly, I think that um, it was perhaps important to have the debate. The timing perhaps was fortuitous or, or, or otherwise, depending on your point of view. Um, but I think it was probably a debate that was coming down the line. And now that we've had it, I think things will improve. Um, if not, if even if there aren't any substantial, meaningful changes, I think there will be behavioural changes um, that will remain. And I think that speaking to some colleagues, you had that behavioural effect after 2010 expenses scandal and then the formation of IPSA. Um, so I do think that on balance it would be a good thing. Peter, coming to you, um, obviously another of the themes here has been the need for cross-party support in terms of whatever is the route forward. Do you feel confident that that's happening now behind the scenes that we, you know, the parties will come together uh, to decide on the next steps? But, yeah, simply the answer is yes, because they need to and they think they'll want to. The, the, the problem is if, if you start making things too party managed and too outside invigilated, and people sort of start losing the fact that being an MP is a pretty undefined opportunity of doing roughly what you like within certain boundaries. Those boundaries may change, they may suddenly pop up, they may suddenly disappear. The outrageous can get away with things and you don't want to have a parliament that's full of church mice and flashes. You want to have the person who's ordinarily embarrassed if they're seen without their clothes on. And I think that I would argue for the ordinary embarrassed type of person having the opportunity of getting in, staying in if they can, and have as much fun as they can. The, the other thing is don't go judging people by what they look like or sound like. My last job before Parliament was putting neon lights outside theatres and cinemas in the West End. Um, and one of the reasons why I persisted in trying to get into Parliament was when the Prime Minister patted me on the back saying plucky by and not proof by, off by the idea of more bombs and all this debris. And I thought I wasn't worried about the bombs. It's working outside with high voltage electricity at heights when I get dizzy by sound of my dignity. He's an MP. He doesn't need a raincoat. Uh, He's indoor job, no heavy lifting. Come an MP, it's an easy life, and I still think it's a pretty good life. Um, Marie, final thought. Just uh, we've only got a minute or two left, but do you do you have optimism for the role of MPs? Is, is the public's perception going to change? Uh, not massively. I think you know the most powerful force in politics is entropy. So I suspect they will have forgotten most about that debate in about three to five weeks. But uh, but but I, I want to be hopeful, and I do think that. 
basically I'm not certain that everything's going to change suddenly tomorrow, but I do think it's a conversation that's now started that hopefully will sort of rumble on in the background for the next few years and hopefully by the next election we'll have come closer to some sort of new definition, hopefully, perhaps. Yeah, you segue brilliantly to my question then to Tim. Is this going to be an issue at the next election? Oh, I mean, I don't think it's going to decide the next election at all. I mean, I think, you know, people have always been um, pretty sceptical, not to say cynical about MPs. There was no great golden age, um, uh, you know, research suggests. So uh, I think when it comes to elections, this will probably be a thing of the past and people will vote as they always do on, on issues on their own personal economic circumstances and on their, you know, views of the parties. All right, thank you all. It's been a fascinating debate. I'm sure if nothing else, uh, we will keep uh, considering the role of MPs and considering how uh, the public can understand it better. My um, thanks to uh, Tim Bale, Marie LeConte, Sir Peter Bottomley and Ben Lake. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you're not got enough of IFG, you can join us again tomorrow uh, where our 25th Data Bytes is going to be getting things done with data in government. And we've got a couple of people from Downing Street uh, who can talk about how they're using data there. So do join tomorrow at six o'clock. Uh, thank you all.